So this is Race Talk, School Talk, a podcast about race and racism in education. And I am Dr. Chadger James Galloway. And so, um, you know, on this on this episode, um, the um, the three children, the three lives that were lost, um, you know, and, and the others that were wounded, I, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply um <clears throat> again, remorseful for what you all have experienced and what you will continue to experience as you all seek to to heal um, from this tragic, uh, from that tragic evening, from that, from this tragic event. And so um, just like to hold a space of, of uh, silence um, for you all in respect, but also in, uh, thinking about your path forward towards healing. One thing that has bothered me about this situation, so, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a researcher, I'm a scholar. Uh, I, I train and teach and talk with a, number of practitioners and one of the things that has bothered me about this MSU situation is the way that the institution seems to be uh, handling it the way that the institution is seeking to push students back in the classroom at a time where it seems like they are not ready and I, I know this and I've heard this from sources who have gone to and or work at and have spent time at the the institution itself. Um, students are expected back on Monday, I believe the 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 19th or, or the 20th. They're expected back in class in session. One of the concerns that that I have and that I've heard from scholars and practitioners uh, at MSU is the places and spaces that these conversations will be happening in these courses, these, um, these classes are places of violence, are places where their peers and classmates and students were gunned down, were physically harmed were put into a space of physical and psychological and social panic. And so one of my frustrations being from the state, having a relation or in relation to the the MSU Spartan family is just that, how can we put those students back in that space? And I, and I just question the actions of you know, those administrators. And, and in that, in that same uh, voice, I have to remember what the true purpose of higher education was and is. And, you know, we say it all the time, or I say it all the time, that higher education is a business. Higher education is a business and is directly impacted by capitalism on the on a state level, on a federal national level, on a global level. And with, with that being said, higher education at the same time is nothing without the students, the students who do not have to come to 
our campuses, the, the multi-million billion dollar campuses and sit within the, the classrooms and the lecture halls and in spaces where they feel unsafe. And so I, I hope that the students and the parents of the students continue to put pressure on the administrator administrators and uh, in a way that makes them rethink this action of putting students back in these spaces where harm and death and murder and life was taken because it just happened. It's still fresh. It's still new. It's not something that has 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 had enough space for them to get away from. And so I, I, I have my own concerns, of course. I have my own wonders and worries and confusions about the choice that the administration is, is choosing to make. But it's also something that, that needs to be said, right? When, 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 when incidents like this happen, we have to figure out how to best support the most important stakeholder, the most important uh, entity, which is our students. And our students have been harmed and, uh, and, and the, the faculty have been harmed and the administrators have been harmed. And so to continue perpetuating that harm and, and putting people in these spaces, I just think is, is woefully unaccept, unacceptable. And uh, hopefully the, the students and their, their, their parents don't take it lying down because, you know, when, when the whole COVID-19 panic happened, very quickly people were able to be flexible about courses and when they were going to happen and the mode of instruction and how long we were going to be online or not be online or virtual or hybrid. And so to me, there are multiple options that can be taken to make sure that every single student that witnessed or heard or experienced or feels uncomfortable can be supported this semester and, and ongoing. That is the responsibility, in my opinion, of the educational institution. It's not the student's job to figure out how to support themselves. It's the institution's job to figure out how do we support our students in this time of trauma in order to continue being successful. How do we reassure them that they are safe? How do we reassure them that this event will not happen again? How do we reassure them that we will do everything in our power to make sure that they can still receive a high powered, high quality education, regardless of the mode of instruction, because that is what they need in order to be successful. And so for me personally, that that's my mindset. That's how I think about it. That's how I enter any and every and all classroom and, and learning spaces. And I know that I'm not an administrator and I probably will never be an administrator because I, I just don't want those problems. And I don't believe in the bureaucracy of of these institutions like that to, to want to be an administrator. You know, I, I, I really hope that that these students reach out and get the support that they need. Because, again, without our students, what are we just a building in a couple in a couple walls like that? That's just it. What what kind of 
drives me crazy about this event, about this event of trauma is that I know deep down that it won't be the last time. I know deep down that this will happen again and it may happen or it will happen on another community college campus as it did a couple years ago. It'll happen on another four-year institution campus. Um, I'm not sure if it's happened at, you know, HBCU or anything like that, but these events will continue to happen. These events will continue to happen in our society. Educational institutions are not immune from them. Our, our, our government institutions are not immune for them. Our grocery stores are not immune for them. And so for me, I, whenever things like this happen, I always ask the question, like, what is it going to take? What is it going to take? When is it going to take it? Um, when is it going to take effect? And how will it happen? And to be honest, I really don't have an answer to that question. But I, I do think it's worth considering what it would look like to be in a space where we are fully um, humanized, where we where we are cared for in, in our holistic being, mind, body, spirit, soul, and where we can actually grow and learn without having to fear for our lives, without having to worry about if someone is going to enter a space and harm us. One of the things that, you know, inst these institutions implement is the the, the, I think it's like run, hide, fight, you know, that's what they, that's what they say, you know, run, hide, fight, something like that to that matter. You know, if something happens, you should run, you should hide. And then last resort, you should fight, you know, for your, uh, for your life. And I think that that is so deeply, deeply harmful, um, to, to even have to have those conversations for people to even put those on their syllabi, as I've seen to, 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 to paste that around educational institutions, all because we refuse to regulate these tools of harm and tools of destruction. And so it's easy to sit here and say, well, yeah, we need to abolish these laws that, 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 that support, you know, these, these tools of harm and tools of destruction. But what would that look like? How, how would that take effect? How can we build and how can we deconstruct? How can we deconstruct and then rebuild a society without these tools, without these guns, without these um, objects that pose us no benefits. And so that'll be something that I continue to think about. That'll be something that I continue to marinate on. And, you know, because, because for me personally, I'm tired of being in spaces and thinking, you know, well, what happens if someone comes in right now or if there is an incident at my institution or um, in the in the place that I habitate, what's my first move? What's my second move? What's my third move? Do we do we blockade the doors? What if there's someone in the hallway? Like these are thoughts that that shouldn't be normal that I shouldn't have to consider, but I do consider, and I think that makes me uh, deeply sad to to be in a space to be in a society where I actively have to consider in different parts of, and not, not every day, but there are just moments, fleeting moments of time where 
I think about it and my mind drifts towards that because I fully believe one day that it's likely that we all may experience such an event. And so, again, I, I really uh, just send my 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 thoughts, feelings of of care and, and healing, love, energy to the folks at MSU, the folks at East, in, in East Lansing, every last one of them that experienced this horrific event or or got the call or, or, or turned on the news and saw that, you know, they or someone they knew were in a a mass shooting event or crisis. I just, I, I, I can't imagine. And so prayerfully, uh, even though there are a couple people on that campus that have already experienced a mass shooting event before, prayerfully, it won't be a, a third time for them. So next, I would like to talk a little bit about Black History Month and the, the co-optation of Black History Month uh, that is that is so current in 2023, but you know all my life, right? I think you know there's there's always these two worlds we operate in, or at least I operate in, and I'll say one of those is a very very black world, and one of those is a very very white world, and you know the these these two worlds uh, sometimes exist, you know uh in, in different pockets and spaces and sometimes they they overlap and so you know one of the things that i want to spend a little bit of time on is is this very very white liberal uh or just white co-optation of black history month and the application of such because it is something that should be celebrated and used and when i say it i mean black history black creations, black art, black inventions, the contributions that, that black people have had globally for centuries should be talked about more than February. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, a it's something that I'm incredibly, um, torn about. And I'll talk about that during, uh, you know, the next, however many minutes that this episode ends up being, um, but, uh, you know, when, when for me and, and I'll get into like the, the history of it, where did it come from and why did it, why does it exist? Um, of course, you know, all of that stems from the work of, of Carter G. Woodson and a number of black educators, um, that, that kind of, uh, really pushed and wanted to emphasize the, the dopeness of blackness and black people, you know, so, uh, for those of you, of, of you all that do not know or are unaware, um, in the the post-enslavement time period in the U.S., right, so 1865 on, um, public education didn't really exist until black Americans um, made it exist, right? And even when public education, um, and when I, when I say that, I mean literally... Um, creating the systems and structures because it wasn't like the white supremacist government who had just um, freed black folks were uh, duly interested in them being um, educated citizens. Right. Uh, especially considering that there weren't voting rights and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so um, 
but but I, but I guess to fast forward a bit, um, Carter G. Woodson um, is this prolific black educator, um, one of the OGs of, of black education. And, um, you know, he he I would say among his many contributions, one of the main ones, along with other uh, black educators, is that they really wanted black children to understand the power that comes along with being black. Um, the love, the respect, the energy, the aliveness, the uh, the success, the contributions that black people have made for centuries on this planet, on this earth. And the reason why that was the focus is because white supremacy within the United States indicated that black people were worthless, not smart, not educated, had no societal contributions. Um, and thus were the reason and rationale for uh, white people to enslave black people, right? That, that was the, um, the rationale. And so Carter G. Woodson was, and again, I keep saying other educators because it was, it, it, I mean, it was him, it was led by him um, in, in, in this context, but there were other educators that, that wanted, um, you know, such as like Anna Julia Cooper, um, that, that really wanted uh, black, black, black people, black students to understand uh, their power and that they weren't the things that white supremacy uh, said they were. That black people weren't those things, that, that we were way more than those things. And so uh, when we get to the context of, you know, K-12 education, this this part of, you know, where does this black history month, you know, come from? Um, it was rooted in, in trying to, to indicate the, the positive things that that black people have have done, the, their contributions and the the piece that's mind boggling not really if you understand white supremacy but um but it's mind boggling is that the the public school systems did not allow black teachers to to teach the tr the true historical record about the contributions of, of of black people um but instead there were a lot of um, texts and curriculums and, and, and teachings that indicated the inferiority of black people. And that's again, rooted in our, our public education system. And so, um, Carter G. Woodson, you know, started with the, with this, this black history week. And, uh, I want to say somewhere along the way, um, many, 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 many decades later after desegregation, um, of schools, I want to say in the early seventies, um, it, it transitioned from black history week to, to black history month. And, um, you know, I take no issue with, with that or the, you know, the foundations and whatnot whatsoever. Um, but what I do take issue with is more so, uh, how it's, it's been, um, 
altered or misconstrued um, within this very white framework or white supremacist society, um, white supremacist, anti-black, <laughs> patriarchal, um, capitalistic society. But, you know, what's 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 so striking to me is that in, in 2023 um, and even before 2023, you know, we've heard other um, folks talk about like well yeah like we got black history month but y'all should be talking about us year round like that's a fact um it, it's it's this idea of we have a month and now we're gonna go away and not talk about blackness or now we're gonna go away and not talk about race or now we're gonna go away and and not mention all these wonderful contributions um it it in this context, in this societal context, not the one that Carter G. Woodson was talking about or working in or writing in or pushing for in, um, it, it, for, the, for the rest of the year, it kind of serves as this type of reminder um, of a group of people not being enough or a group of people not being uh, mainstream or who's mainstream when we say mainstream. It's probably something that that Toni Morrison might say, um, but it, it's 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 not indicative of our true societal contributions, and so it's weird um, to be brought out for a month by um, by whether it's uh, you know these multi billion dollar companies, by politicians, by um, you know, NBA, NFL, um, by these these universities and schools where that that, you know, want to celebrate Black History Month. And for me, it's just like y'all should be celebrating black history every single day, 365 and twice on Sunday. Like, like we've done so much for this world and we've done so much for this nation that it's it's mind boggling to me that it's it's not even a consideration. And so, you know, my beef or my, my why I'm bothered about um, you know, this this notion of Black History Month is because it, it should be something that is honored more than what it is. And I think that it, it lets people off the hook, um, for it lets white folks off the hook and and probably um, non-black folks in, in terms of having conversations and talking about, again, these contributions and the celebration of, of black folks. And one of the things that bothers me, because it happened to me and I didn't I didn't realize it happened to me. I didn't realize it. I did not realize it. And I was so mad at myself after the fact um, because I felt like I got duped by Black History Month, um, not from a like a black person, you know, perspective, but it was like. Um, a white organization, a white person um, that took that I thought that I thought took interest that was taking interest in um, in me and my work and my scholarship and the things that I had to think and say, you know, um, and this is early on, which is still early in my career, but this is early, early in my career. So, you know, I was hype. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm about to get interviewed and, you know, they going to send it out. And and, you know, I'm, I, you know, people going to know who I am and I'm a rise. I'm rising up and, and this and that. And, um you know, so I talk my talk. I talk my talk that I always talk about race and whatnot. And, you know, what was interesting was um, like when they sent it out, it was like, oh, it's, you know, a part of like the, the black history, you know, blast or the black history, you know, edition of 
you know, blah, 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 right? Like, no point in, in fully naming it. And that was disheartening. It was disheartening to me because I was I was sitting there and I was like, dang, like, my work is dope more than just in February. My work is dope, you know, 12 months out the year. 365 again twice on Sundays like my work is dope I know my work is dope I know my work is fire and so you know for for me to just be sitting there and and uh to get an opportunity and then for that to only coincide with a certain time of year and a certain month it made me feel real slighted and disrespected um and it made me feel uh made me have some animosity um towards how certain groups, non-black groups, non-black organizations um, and spaces only do Black History Month because if they don't, then, you know, they might be perceived a certain way, you know. And so it's like, okay, cool. You talk about Black History Month now, but we talk this big anti anti racist social justice game. or I'm going to say y'all, not not we. (laughs) And. we talk this big social justice, anti-racist game, but, you know, what systems and structures are we upholding by only talking about something during a certain time of the year because you don't want to be perceived a certain way? It's not we have to do Black History Month because we truly want to celebrate, you know, the contributions, but it's like we have to do Black History Month because if we don't, we'll be looked at, you know, um, as uh, as non-supportive or non-liberal or non-socially just, Um and again, in, in, in quotes. So um, it's something, again, that I guess I'm going to take issue with and continue taking issue with until I really see the, the, the full wide celebration of um, of my people, my people, my people, um, uh, as 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 Hurston would say, because we deserve that. We deserve that. Um, and we've earned that. And so. You know, I think for me, it's not so much the the conception of how or why it was created. I mean, the, 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 that's frustrating in itself. We we had to create a black history week. We had to create a black history month because someone enacting white supremacy. Tried to take our our power from us, tried to take our knowledge from us, tried to take our um, our history from us. Uh, and it's a common trick. It's a common tactic of, of white supremacy. Um, you know, and, uh, I think that it's something that, 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 that we really have to, um, explore and keep the word out on. And so moving forward, I'm going to continue to think about my own relationship to the month and and how I want to to think about black history, how I want to celebrate it, how I want to celebrate not just the people who are deemed successes, because to me personally, if you're a black person that survived in this white supremacist nation, um, you are black history, you know, Um, and that's a daily struggle. That's a that's a daily struggle. And so um, 
for me, that's where I'm at. That's what I'm thinking about. And I hope that, you know, for people that are listening to this, I hope that this makes sense. I hope that this is something where folks can listen back and, and, and kind of start questioning the different things that we see in the world, the different things that we see and understand in the world around race, space, um, race-based holidays and their application of them. Because, like, I don't, my, my race isn't some uh, marketing ploy. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to see... Uh, and, it, you know, this same thing happened last year with, with Juneteenth, the Juneteenth holiday when it was federalized. But like, my, I don't I don't care about, you know, oh, now this company wants to have a Juneteenth this and this type of shirt and whatever. You know, where were y'all when we was trying to to be free, to celebrate our freedom? Where were y'all when um, we needed that support? Like, don't just hop on the don't just hop on the bandwagon now that it's like PC or OK or like the, the liberal thing to do. Like do it when it's the radical thing to do. Um, if not, I'm not really interested in, you know, what you got to say um, or your support. Uh, you know, I'm not, that doesn't mean that that people can't change. But when we're talking about these organizations, um, these multi-million and billion dollar open organizations doing stuff, you know, it's just I see through that. I see through you. I see through um, I see you. I see through you trying to pimp blackness for a dollar. And so um and I feel the same way about these educational institutions. You know, it, it's just I just want folks to kind of be who they are and be what they want to be and and not do something because it's not their true intent behind it. And so I'll just leave it at that. Um, One of the things that I learned this week, and I wouldn't even say this week, but I'll say I learned this week was um, so one of the things that I learned this week that I was thoroughly surprised by, and I think is I always think it's important to talk about what we've learned, especially in the conversation of race and and education. Um, there was a book that was reading for um for one of my courses um let's see what's the who wrote this book yeah so it is it's called mothers of mass uh mothers of mass resistance um white woman in the politics of, of white supremacy by elizabeth um by elizabeth Gillespie, I believe, McRae. Hopefully, I pronounced your your name uh, correctly. If not, I deeply, deeply apologize. But uh, one of the dope things that this book kind of details is, um, you know, racial segregation from 1920s to 1970s, and how white women were really a part of the charge, right? And uh, the the dope part that I think um, of this book when I was reading it is that it taught me something, you know, it taught me something and it, and it kind of details how, you know, white women were really trying to exclude certain curriculums and histories. Um, and some of this stuff, you know, I talked about before, like what they, what they wanted their white kids to know and what, and what folks didn't want um, black people to know. Right. But for white kids it was that, you know, you've had all these contributions for black people is that you don't have any, you're racially inferior. Right. Um, is, is the gist. Right. And, and there's other books that talk about this, but in this particular text, 
one of the, the, the last page, I want to say, of chapter one, it talks about um, a book that Toni Morrison edited and a book that Toni Morrison edited, I want to say, in um, like the early 1970s. So before she was she was really, really writing, writing. And it's called The Black Book. And so The Black Book is a book of of images of of black Americans, um, of of black people, and and their their contributions, things that they have done, um, uh, things that they have experienced, uh, you know, globally around the world, uh, but all, but you know, in 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 the Americas, right? And so, what's interesting, um, and how how uh, McRae talks about the Black Book is that when Toni Morrison put the put the Black Book out, that's edited this edited uh, you know, book of, of pictures. There was so much shock about the book because didn't nobody know the history. Didn't nobody know that stuff like this existed. Didn't nobody know that, 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 that black people um, had such, um, you know, such contributions. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's one of those things to come back to, um, because I'm like, yo, I gotta pick up this book and I gotta sift through it. Um, I got, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta learn me something, you know, that that maybe I didn't know um, about black people, about black blackness, about the conditions that we have thrived and survived in, despite the um, despite the odds that that were placed against us by by white supremacy. And so that was something that I learned this week, and that was something that um, I was so thrilled to kind of take in because, you know, I've been spending so much time trying to um, understand more about the black experience and understand more about um, parts of blackness that, that don't just um, thrive or exist uh, um, because of uh, white supremacy, but pieces of blackness that, that exist outside of it. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the side of blackness that we don't often get to hear or talk about because we're so enamored with, with the anti-blackness. And so, um, I'm excited to pick up this book. I'm excited to, to kind of sift through it and, and, and read and, and look at it, um, and, and just be in a space and, and mode of learning. And so, um, I definitely, definitely wanted to bring that up and I'll probably talk about other things and other books that, um, that I'm, that I've picked up over the years and things that I'm reading. Um, definitely we'll probably discuss, uh, black geographies here, um, in the future, uh, and certain texts that I, I definitely found dope, uh, and, and, and want to kind of highlight, but, um, in the meantime, in the meantime, this is this is the one this is the one for 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 this episode. So uh, I don't think there's anything else that that I kind of want to detail or kind of want to discuss or talk about. So this is Race Talk School Talk, a podcast about race and racism in education. My name is Dr. Chad James Galloway, and uh, I'll get at y'all next time.